Please turn with me to Judges chapter 2 if you have a Bible with you this morning or a smartphone. Judges chapter 2, it's page 258 if you're using a pew Bible. 2 weeks ago I began our series through Judges by kind of introducing you to the book and highlighting a few of the central themes. But as I noted, this book really needs no introduction because the author himself provides his own introduction in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Judges. According to this, last week we saw what is often labeled as a historical introduction to the book. While here, this week in chapter 2, we see what is more a theological introduction to the book. Now I know that, you know, we are eager to get to all the juicy details of the judges and their fascinating accounts, and I don't blame you, I'm eager myself, but we've got to understand the big picture if we're going to make sense of the parts, the individual parts. And so we will spend a week today on this second part of the introduction here in chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, I'll be reading from verse 1 all the way down through verse 6. This is God speaking to us here today through His Word. Let us listen to it. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from, the land, from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel... The people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of, an, of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their father, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, to as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's ask now in prayer for the blessing upon the preaching. Bow with me. Father, you yourself in your word says that your word shall never fail to accomplish the purpose for which you send it. We pray then this morning that your purposes of your word in our midst would be for our good, according to your grace and mercy and patience, that it might create and sustain our faith, that it might put our feet on the paths of life, that it might conform us to your image. We ask that you would be in the preaching of your word this hour in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a temptation that all of us here are faced with every single day. It's a temptation to us when things in life fall apart and we go through great times of suffering and difficulty and trial and sin. In many ways, it can also be a temptation that comes to us when things go well and circumstances tend to be in our favor. Temptation that I'm speaking of here is our natural, instinctive inclination to evaluate the circumstances of life from our own perspective rather than from God's. There are, of course, many labels that we can give to this. 
This temptation is what we might call is inherent man-centeredness. Me-centeredness. The foundational level, it might, be called, it might be called worldliness, secularism, walking by sight rather than by faith. And of course, this type of perspective manifests itself in many different ways as well. Like how, for example, we often think that the greatest threats to our lives and to our souls remain outside of us rather than inside of us. Like how we're tempted to evaluate the character of God or the love of God towards us based upon how well things are going in life or how poorly things are going in our life rather than according to the promises of His Word. This is a temptation that we all face, the temptation to evaluate our lives based upon what we see, uh, what we feel, what we want, what we think is best, what we think is good and bad, rather than giving ourselves up to God and His purposes and trusting His wisdom and His grace and His sovereignty. Don't you wish then at times, particularly in times of trouble, particularly in times of difficulty, that we could get God's perspective on our lives? You know, one of the most difficult things about suffering and going through hard seasons of life is the confusion that it brings. What's going on? What is going to happen next? Why is this happening Is God in control? If so, what in the world is He doing? Is He angry at me? Is He loving me? Why can't I put off this besetting sin? There's confusion in that. God doesn't want us to sin, right? Then why doesn't He deliver us from this sin that so clearly violates His Word and threatens to wreck our lives? particularly in times of difficulty, we might long for God's perspective on our life. What what is He doing in all of this? What is He thinking in all of this? Well, as we come here to our passes in Judges, that is exactly what we get. We get God's perspective on the sins and struggles and difficulties of his people. I mentioned before that chapter 1 gives us a historical introduction to the book, while chapter 2 gives us a theological introduction. In chapter 1, we get the historical facts from man's point of view. This is ground level, right? This is what we see. This is man's perspective. But in chapter 2 here, we get the same events from a different camera angle, as it were. From God's perspective. From His point of view. And this, brethren, is particularly instructive to us. As I labored to show last week, the nation of Israel and God's dealing with them is but a picture of His relationship with Adam and His dealing with the first man in the garden. Israel is a recasting of the same story. It is a replay of the same plot line in a slightly different setting. And in this respect, on another level, 
It's also illustrative of God's dealings with us. In fact, I seriously considered naming this series, This Is Us. I thought that might be a little too cutting edge for a Reformed Baptist church. But this book is us. This is us. Judges is like a deep well that when we look into and our eyes finally reach the bottom, we realize that it's just but a reflection of us. That's what the book of Judges is all about. It's a tragic comedy on the sinfulness of sin, on who we are by nature, on what this sin has brought about, how we need someone to deliver us from it. And in this respect, it's important because, you know, we don't learn about sinfulness and human depravity by just being told. If you have children, you know this by firsthand experience. We don't learn our depravity by being told. We must be shown. We must be taught. We need real life examples that we can identify with and see ourselves in. And this is what Judges is intended to do in many respects. To show us ourselves. And not just to show us ourselves, but to show us the God who acts in history. The God who's not just so entirely outside of this creation, as He is outside of this creation, but not so entirely outside as if He's uninvolved. The God of Scripture is a God who enters human history. The God of Scripture is one who shapes and molds every single event in history for His purposes. And that's what the book of Judges in this chapter right here is calling us in to see. To see the hand of God in all of this. To consider this so that we might be taught, so that we might learn about ourselves and learn about Him. That we might trust Him and love Him and submit to His rule in our lives and adore Him as our God. And so today... I want you to see how this passage calls us to view all of human history, even all the details of our own life, from God's perspective rather than our own. And in this I have four points that kind of stand out from this chapter that I want to lay before you today. Four points. The first one is this, the problem of human sinfulness. The problem of human sinfulness. This chapter opens with this appearance of the angel of the Lord. And verses 1 through 5 here in chapter 2 is kind of a summary. And the rest of the chapter, all the way down to 3 6, are the details of that summary. So we're going to kind of jump back and forth here because it essentially covers the same thing. This is not chronological here. The main point, though, that chapter 2 begins with is that the author wants to highlight just how far and how fast. Israel sank into sin and unbelief after the death of Joshua. Here we see in verse 1 that we have the angel of the Lord. And it says that he went up from Gilgal to Bochim. This angel is a supernatural representative of the Lord. And as you might have noticed, he speaks in the first person. He speaks as if he is the Lord. We're going to come back to this. A little bit later, but 
You can probably anticipate my argument here that we ought to view this in light of the New Testament as a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ visiting His people. That's who the angel of the Lord is here. This is Yahweh speaking in this supernatural representation, this epiphany through the angel of the Lord. But I want you to notice the, the language here. It's carefully worded. It's important. We read that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. This is key because if you haven't, if you, as you might have noticed, that's how chapter 1 verse 1 begins as well. There we read that after the death of Joshua, the people inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? The answer in chapter 1 is, of course, Judah. But here in chapter 2, the deeper truth really is, is revealed by use of parallelism. It is the angel of the Lord who should really go up before them and fight for them. But the point is, unfortunately, instead of the angel of the Lord going up to fight for them, to judge their enemies, here in chapter 2, the angel of the Lord is going up to judge Israel instead for her sin. They needed the Lord to go up before them, but in their sin they brought in the judgment of the Lord rather than their salvation. Furthermore, here it's described that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And this is intentional language as well. It's not as if, you know, the angel of the Lord lived in Gilgal. Like he had a, you know, a house there with a mailbox. It's not that he resided there. He just comes to this new place. This is intentional language as well. Gilgal is important because it is the place where Israel first celebrated the Passover in the land. Gilgal is the place where Joshua first encountered this angel of the Lord when he was marching towards Jericho. Gilgal is the place where the people covenanted with the Lord and raised this monument of 12 stones upon their entrance into the promised land. So this angel coming up from Gilgal serves to highlight how the campaign had begun in Canaan, in Gilgal, through the angel of the Lord, the Lord was with them there. They covenanted with Him there. And the, this serves as a greater backdrop in which the angel now turns implicitly indicting them for their sin. You left me in Gilgal, essentially, through your unbelief. And that's exactly what He comes to do. To prosecute Israel for their sin. He's acting as a prosecutor here in these first five verses. And notice how he does this. He does it by way of contrast. He begins by talking about the faithfulness of God. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He's recalling God's act and he's recalling God's faithfulness. Essentially, he's saying, look, your failures here to secure the land are not because I have failed to hold up my end of the bargain. Rather, verse 2, he says here, our covenantal agreement was that you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. 
this is the, the sin of Israel. The historical account of which we saw last week in chapter 1. Israel was commanded to exterminate the Canaanites, but what did they do instead? They enslaved them. Right? They permitted them to indwell, to dwell in certain parts of the land. They chose to humiliate and disfigure some of the fallen leaders rather than putting them to death. They did not destroy the Canaanite places and altars of worship. And so, the angel of the Lord comes to say, God has been faithful, you have not been, I am the prosecuting attorney, uh, attorney who is bringing charges upon you. You have broken the covenant. But at this point here, I want you to notice the root of the issue. We might put it this way. Why did they break the covenant? What's the root problem here? What's going on? We see that they didn't obey. They didn't drive out the Canaanites. We see their idolatry. But ultimately, these are just symptoms of a greater problem. What is the root? Well, I, I think we find the answer to that in verses 6 through 13. And specifically, we see it in verse 10. Joshua died, and all of that greatest generation, the great generals and warriors who, who had conquered the land. But what do we read there in verse 10? There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the root of the matter. This is the heart of human sinfulness. This is the, the, the fountain from which all of their unbelief and disobedience flowed. Remember we talked about, excuse me, we read in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy during our reading of the law. Israel was commanded to teach their children, the next generation, about the Lord and about His mighty acts. But here we see this next generation did not know the Lord. In some respects, this is a failure to obey Deuteronomy chapter 6, as I mentioned earlier. However, I want to be careful here. And as we consider this, I want to be careful because at this point, so many commentaries, so many other um, sermons and preachers usually at this point stop and say, okay, Israel failed to teach their children. Thus, this ought to be a reminder to us that we need to learn from this and we need to devote ourselves to the teaching of children. We need to obey Deuteronomy chapter 6 so that we're not like Israel. And at this point, undoubtedly, there is an element of truth to this. I don't want to deny that at all. But I don't think this is the main point of the passage at all. Nor even of the Deuteronomy 6 passage either. The problem of human sinfulness is not outside of us. The solution is not just better education, homeschooling our children, raising them in church, as good as those things might be. That doesn't solve the problem. And this verse, I believe, highlights a problem that is much deeper than this. They did not know the Lord. To know the Lord in Scripture is not a reference to intellectual knowledge. It's not solved by education. The next generation most certainly knew about the Lord. 
They most certainly heard about what God had done in the Exodus, but they did not know the Lord in a spiritual sense, in a saving sense, in a relational sense. The Lord was not central to their lives. The Lord was not precious to them. They had no relationship or communion with Him. And this is the root of why, in verse 11, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the root of why, in verse 12, they abandoned the God who brought them out of Egypt. In verse 13, they bowed down to the Baals, the false gods all around them. They venerated them. They worshipped them. And this is the problem of human sinfulness in the passage. There was no true faith in Israel. That's why they fell into disobedience and as covenant breakers. Here, brethren, we can see and easily make application to our own selves in this story. We too have broken covenant with God by nature. We too sinned with Adam and in Adam and have broken that covenant of creation. We too, as we considered in Sunday school, are born as children of wrath, conceived in sin. Being born to faithful parents, being born in the covenant community, means absolutely nothing to actually, truly knowing the Lord. Because our greatest problem is not education. It is inside of us, not outside of us. And as a result of that, we too have bowed down to idols. We too have chased after temporary passing pleasures of this world. We too have turned things in this creation as our ultimate source of comfort and hope and joy and satisfaction. Israel is but a display of natural man apart from God. And that is the problem that the writer of Judges is saying. Look at what it's leading to. And what's going to fix this? But hang with me here. I'm going to come back to this at the end. And hang with me because there's much more to this story that brings that point into clearer focus. But secondly here, and we've got to move quickly, but secondly here, after seeing the problem of inherent sinfulness, we see the punishment of a just God. So there's the problem. Now what happens? The punishment of a just God. Look here what the angel of the Lord says next at the middle of verse 2. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Here, what we have is that the Lord is bringing down the covenant curses upon Israel for their disobedience. He's bringing down these curses, these very specific things that He had already promised that He was going to do in the book of Deuteronomy. But I want you to notice the striking parallel here. The parallel with the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Recall that after the woman... Excuse me, after the man, Adam, blamed the woman for eating the fruit, God, Yahweh, turns to Eve. And what does he say to her? What is this you have done? The same phrase that the angel uses here. What is this you have done? 
This is a, a recalling of the same Yahweh coming in judgment to, to His people in light of the broken covenant. And furthermore, in Genesis 3, right after he says this, and God imposes the covenant curses, what is one description of the curse that God brings in light of Adam's sin? In Genesis 3.18, he says that thorns will now plague the earth and be a burden to man. And here as well, what do we see? The Canaanites will be thorns in your side. And then later, down in verse 15, it said Israel was, to be, it was then in great distress. This recalls as well the toil and the anguish of the covenant curse that God prophesied, uh, spoke of there in Genesis chapter 3. And so here, again, I want you to see that this is a replay of the original covenant of works. This is the replay of God's dealing with humanity in Adam and Eve. And the same thing is happening. This is what brings the just punishment of God. In verse 13, we read that they went after other gods and bowed down to them. They venerated them. They devoted themselves to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. And this is but a ramification, a playing out of the covenant curse. Here it might be helpful to stop and think about um, Baal for a second. Baal, I have more to speak about this. It comes out in so many ways throughout this book. But he uh, was the rain and fertility god in the ancient Near East. Rain was very important. It was necessary for life in such a a climate and culture. And fertility, the the blessings of children, uh, were important to cultivating the land, producing food, to protecting the home uh, before modern technology and, and all of that stuff. But right alongside Baal was his female cohort, um, Ashtaroth. And essentially then, rain and the blessing of fertility depended upon Baal getting together intimately with Ashtaroth. When that happened, rain and fertility came. And so there were all sorts of very deviant sexual practices and temple prostitution that practiced in the ancient Near East intended to provoke Baal and Ashtaroth to get together so that they would receive rain and fertility. Statues and images of Baal and Ashtaroth grossly exaggerated genitalia. And so I say this because it's important, perhaps then you understand why this idolatrous culture was so entrapping to them. Perhaps then it puts new light on how God often speaks of their sin as whoring after other gods. And He uses sexual imagery. Why God often refers to Himself as a jealous husband over an unfaithful wife. This is the sexual idolatry that leads to Him being provoked to anger in verse 13. This is why He warns them as a curse of a curse of a covenant. Because of your disobedience, I'm not going to drive them out before you, knowing that they had no chance in and of themselves to withstand that temptation and idolatry on their own. Leaving them in the land 
was essentially God judging sin with more sin and leaving them to themselves. And this is why his anger is kindled and he gives them over in verse 14 to plunderers. He sells them into the hand of their enemies. In verse 15 it says his hand was against them for harm. God is active in being against them for harm and they were in terrible distress. This is the judgment of a just God. But at the same respect, in the same respect, It's important to see here that there's also an element of love in this as well. It is good and right and loving to be angry with someone we love when they're hurting themselves, when they're destroying themselves, when they're giving themselves over to what will ultimately ruin them. Yes, God is bringing bringing misery into their lives. Yes, in part, this is to judge them but He does not cast them off altogether. That's the amazing thing about this book. He never casts them off altogether. His desire, even in being against them for harm, is to drive them back to Himself. And that's the nature of the God that we serve. Sometimes God strengthens our enemies. Sometimes His hand is directly against us for harm. Sometimes He truly gives us what we deserve. Sometimes it feels like He's abandoned us to our own sin and misery and we have no escape. But often, brethren, this is the mercy of a loving Father so that we see our sin so that we wake up, so that we see what we truly deserve, so that we recognize our dependence upon Him. Our dependence even to escape sin and temptation to do what we know is right. So this is the justice of God, but it's a justice that is tinged with mercy. And that then leads us to our third point. That is essentially our third point. Thirdly, we see the pity of a merciful father. The pity of a merciful father. Remember in Genesis 3, after God brings down the curses, what does He do at the end of that chapter? He makes for them clothing from garments of skin. He doesn't cast them off. He shows mercy. In a similar manner, we see this in verse 16. After all of this sin, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And then in verse 13, uh, 18, He did this again because the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. He does not cast them off forever. He grants them salvation from their suffering and from their enemies. As I mentioned in Sunday school, what is so amazing about this is that all throughout this book, all throughout this chapter, and all throughout this book, we never read of Israel actually repenting. We never read of them turning away from their sin. We read in verse 4 that they lifted up their voices and wept. This simply means crying. Loud crying. In verse 18, they were groaning. But this isn't repentance. This isn't even prayer. 
They never put off their idolatry. But this is the character of God. He does not wait for His people, for us, to make the first move. He's more merciful than that. He is moved by the suffering and groaning of a sinful and rebellious people. Brethren, if you believe that God gets some sort of pleasure out of your difficult circumstances, if you believe that He stands by idly and He doesn't really care, or He looks down and and, and, and essentially says they're getting what they deserve, then you don't know the God of Scripture. That is not the God of Scripture. If you think that God, every time difficulty comes into your life, He just sits back and waits for you to finally get it and finally come to your senses, then you don't know the God of Scripture. He is moved to pity by the groans and suffering of His people, even when those groans and suffering are a result of our own sin. That's the extent of His love. It's the extent of his compassion and his long suffering. And this is why the God of Scripture is unlike any other man made God or creation of our own imagination. Who does this? Who gives his people this many chances? Who is so infinite and boundless in compassion and in mercy? This is a God who pities his people. That brings us into our fourth and final observation. Problem of human sinfulness. We've seen the punishment of a just God, the pity of a merciful Father. Uh, Fourthly and finally, the purpose of a sovereign Lord. Purpose of a sovereign Lord. In a very real respect, as I just kind of emphasized, this passage is meant to highlight the character and mercy of God. But you know what the bigger emphasis is here? His sovereignty. His acts. His control. That's why I began in the introduction by saying this passage calls us to view all the details of our life through the lens of God's perspective rather than our own. Here we read that God strengthens the enemies of Israel to punish them, but then He raises up judges to save them from these very same enemies. The author wants to make it clear that God is the one calling the shots. He is the one who grants them victory in battle. He is the one who strengthens their enemies in defeat. He is the one who raises up judges to save them. This book essentially may be, may be a story, a movie about our life and our sinfulness, but, the second, but that really is a secondary plot to the greater plot line is that this book is a display of who God is in His character and what He purposes and is doing in history so that we identify ourselves with Israel and the God that we serve and we see all of our circumstances in life through this lens as well. It says here in verse 22 that God purposes not to drive out the other nations because... He wanted to test Israel to see if they would walk in the way of the Lord. 
In verse uh, 2 of chapter 3, God leaves enemies in the land so that the next generation of Israel might learn war. These are the purposes of God. He's testing Israel. Kind of like the testing of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He leaves nations in the land to test Israel and to teach them warfare. And this is very, very important to their understanding of salvation and God's purposeful, mighty acts. They did not know what it took to get the land. Perhaps they just assumed that things have always been that way. The next generation didn't know the warfare that entailed, uh, was entailed in obeying the Lord. They did not know or understand how a holy God could not dwell in the midst of a land where there were unclean people remaining. The next generation did not know that they could not keep the terms of the covenant on their own. So the purpose of the Sovereign Lord is to raise up enemies, to purposely strengthen these enemies, to test them with thorns in their sides, but it's all for a loving and good purpose. To bring them to an awareness of their sin, to drive them outside of themselves, to seek refuge in God. And this is the perspective through which we too are to view our own life and all the circumstances that we face every single day. How quick we are to praise God when salvation comes, when good things happen. Oh, I've been so blessed. But how slow we are to see His hand in the difficulties and the trials as well. How could you let this happen? What are you doing? We must see that God is sovereign in both. He's purposely ordering everything in your life if you are in Christ for your good and His glory. And He does that because He loves you. He loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He loves you? That's the first step to viewing the circumstances of life, particularly difficulty. Believing by faith, even when it doesn't feel like it, that He loves you and what He has brought into your life is an element, is a manifestation of His love. Not His anger. This is a loving Father who purposes good for His children. Who tests and tries us as well who longs to teach us about ourselves, to push us back into His arms, and to train us for warfare. The war against sin and Satan, the world and the flesh. Well, brethren, as we draw all this to a conclusion this morning, I want to leave you with a central takeaway from this theological introduction. This takeaway, essentially, is that we must view this in Judges 2 as ultimately none of it is enough. None of it is enough. God testing Israel is not enough. It doesn't do the job. God sending Israel judges to give them temporary salvation is not enough. They turn right back to their sin afterwards. 
God's mercy on a temporal level is not enough. God, God's commandments to them, the law of God is not enough. Their weeping and groaning is not enough. The covenant curses and the threats that they bring is not enough. It does not fix the problem. Something more is needed. And that's where we must come back to the angel of the Lord here in verse 1 of chapter 2. Don't you see the book opens with Israel saying, God, who shall go up for us? And what is the answer? Judah. And what do we see in Jesus Christ but that He is the Lion from the tribe of Judah. God's answer to the problem is Judah, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, upon His death and upon His resurrection, is the one who fights for His people. He is the one who goes before us in battle. He is the one who grants salvation, not temporary, but everlasting, and has sat down at the right hand of God. He is the one who became a curse for His people. Adam and Eve were cursed with thorns. Israel was cursed with thorns. Jesus Christ came bearing the crown of thorns on His head as the scapegoat, bearing the curse for the sins of His people. Taking that curse upon Him. And ultimately, the problem of human sinfulness this generation who did not know the Lord will never be fixed by education. Rather, it's fixed in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. The promise of the new covenant. They shall all know Me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, through a new and greater and better covenant, not a covenant of works with Adam, not a covenant of works with Israel, not from education, not from any change, not from the law itself, but from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant given to every single covenant member, there will never be another generation who does not know the Lord. Jesus Christ broke that cycle of sin. Jesus Christ broke that cycle of each generation failing to know the Lord because through the Spirit, new life is granted, new hearts, ability to obey and believe the law being written on our heart. And we all know the Lord through faith in Him. This is the salvation the judges can only long for mourn for and anticipate. And that, brethren, is what changes our entire perspective on life. Now the, the thorns in our flesh, as Paul says, speaks of in 2 Corinthians, the thorns in our flesh don't come because of covenant curses. Rather, what, what does Paul say? To teach me to rely upon the God who raises the dead. To teach me not to rely upon myself. To push me into the arms of a loving and compassionate and powerful Savior. 
This changes our perspective because our greatest need, our greatest curse has been borne by Christ. We can go forth with assurance that no matter what happens, it all works out for our good. It all works out for our glory. Excuse me, His glory. And God is using every circumstance of our lives to train us for warfare, to teach us about Himself, to work all things for good. Brethren, this is the Savior that we serve, and this is the Savior that, unfortunately, Israel could only long for, but that we have seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is our hope, and this is our comfort, and this is how we can face no matter what life may throw at us, throw at us tomorrow morning. Do you believe this? Do you, do you see and know this God? That's the question that faces each and every one of us today. May God give us the grace to know the Lord and to believe these things by faith. Amen. Let's pray.